I'm Ray Rogers. You're listening to Fix This, a podcast exploring tech ideas and solutions to some of today's largest challenges. Research is key to addressing climate change with effective, timely solutions. Tackling climate change requires not only global collaboration, but also a diverse set of problem solvers and their ideas. By providing data, resources, and expertise, the Amazon Sustainability Data Initiative, or ASDI, seeks to accelerate sustainability research and innovation by minimizing the cost and time required to acquire and analyze large sustainability data sets. The program supports innovators and researchers with data, tools, and technical expertise. In August 2021, we announced that ASDI is collaborating with Silver Lining and the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, to run the first ever full production climate model simulations in the cloud. Data from this research will be available to scientists everywhere. ASDI is donating AWS cloud resources, technical support, and early access to its high-performance computing solutions to support simulations of near-term climate using NCAR's Community Earth System Model version 2 and its whole atmosphere community climate model, which are among the most sophisticated climate and atmospheric models in the world. To discuss this and more, I chatted with Kelly Wanzer, Executive Director of Silver Lining, Jean-Francois Lamarck, Climate and Global Dynamics Laboratory Director at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and Chris Leonard, Research Staff and Climatologist at the Climate System Analysis Group at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Take a listen. My name is Kelly Wanzer. I'm the founder and executive director of Silver Lining. Hi, I'm Jean-Francois Lamarck. I am the Climate and Global Dynamics uh, Lab Director at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Hi, my name is Chris Leonard. I work at the Climate System Analysis Group at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's report published in the summer of 2021 had very urgent findings. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said this is a, quote, code red for humanity. I'm curious, what were some of the points from this report that most stood out to each of you? In all of the scenarios for emissions that they covered in the report, that the Earth will continue to warm through the mid-century which means that the impacts that we're seeing today and the kinds of uh, risks that we have of the Earth system becoming uh, less safe will grow for the next 30 years or so. And that's been there in the charts for a while, Uh, but this was the first time the report called it out uh, explicitly. This is the, the first assessment report, this Working Group 1, 6 assessment, where it's actually been really, really explicit in saying, listen, it's time now. We're here. We're living climate change right now. And we really need to do something about it. We need our policymakers to think about it. So it's that shift. It's not actually a shift. It's it's the conservative nature of the IPCC that has delivered such a dramatic message that should really shake the world to its foundations uh, to understand that this is real. This, this climate change thing is real. It's happening right now. People are dying because of climate change now. And it's impossible to ignore. 
uh, the changes that, that we're seeing. They're, they're there. It's not just that models with all their weaknesses, um, and there are some, um, but they also have a lot of strength. It's not just about models. Uh, the real world is showing us the type of changes that models were saying 10, 20 years ago would happen. And so now the line of evidence is there. Uh, the evidence of what the world is now compared to what we could expect it would have been without anthropogenic emissions is well beyond any noise in the system that could be attributed to those variations. And so right now we just cannot ignore it anymore. Um, there, there are just no questions that it's it's there. And as Chris mentioned, it will get worse unless we, we start having drastic actions. This topic of climate change and the ex existential crisis it poses can quickly become very overwhelming to consider. But what do each of you see as possible with the right technology, collaboration, and timely global action? To really make it happen, this is not going to be something that can be done um, in isolation. This is something that will really require collaborations across the world and decisions at the highest level of coordination and development of new technologies to really bring the amount of carbon dioxide and, and other gases down, not just limiting the amount that we're putting down, because that will still increase uh, the amount that is present in the atmosphere, but really starting to um, bring those emissions um, into a level where the concentration in, in the system are going down. A big problem in climate solutions is that they operate in over different periods of time. So when we reduce emissions, we stop emissions going into the atmosphere, but the greenhouse gases that are already there, they stay for a very long period of time. What happens is if we need things in the short term, within 10, 20, 30 years, we haven't had anything in our portfolio. And so scientists have said, kind of looking through the various possibilities for how you might reduce warming quickly, like within a few years or even less. Where they landed in the big assessments in the US and the UK was that slightly increasing the reflection of sunlight from the planet, and especially from the atmosphere, from particles and clouds in the atmosphere, is one of the most promising ways to do that. And it's one of the ways that nature regulates the planetary system. And it's something that we see uh, even today, pollution partly has that effect too, where it's reflecting some sunlight away and actually partially offsetting the warming. So the biggest category of this sort of very fast acting climate intervention is the solar climate intervention, where we slightly increase the reflection of sunlight from the atmosphere which is why we connect in the Safe Climate Research Fund with the top people we can find in the world to look at those kinds of questions. A couple of them are here on this call with Jean-Francois and Chris to say, how can we quickly accelerate the information that we have and the predictive and analytical tools that we have to look at both what we think the climate system will do in the short term and whether these atmospheric interventions to try to cool the planet might be helpful. Living in a developing nation, I mean, South Africa, I live in Africa, we are an energy-starved 
and largely, but we don't want to be, we want energy so that we can power homes and we can be a little bit like developed nations, I suppose. But the question is, where is that energy going to come from? If we burn coal, uh, we become part of the problem. So we don't really want to do that. So renewable energy is, is our best option to satisfy our, our energy desire, I suppose, our desire for energy. And that's that's what we need to try and do. In, in our context, we've had with a similar thing with uh, cell phones, where very few Africans have access to landlines. So 20, 30 years ago, when there weren't cell phones, that's all we had to communicate was telephone lines. Um, but as cell phones developed, we didn't need landlines anymore. So we basically leapfrogged um, landlines, land telephones, straight to cell phones. And that's a similar kind of thing that we need to do with our energy sourcing is we need to leapfrog fossil fuels for renewable energies. So not even visit fossil fuels if we can. So really investing in looking at where and how can we produce energy within the developing nations um, whose energy requirements and needs will increase as we go through time. I think is one really good way for technology uh, to to help with this. And I'd, I'd also like to just think a little bit about parallel with, with COVID and how the world responded to COVID. It, it was amazing how last year epidemiologists all over the world got together and it was a really concerted effort that, that goes to where we are now with the vaccine where many of us can be vaccinated. But the, <laughs> the problem is in human nature, I suppose, where um, a lot of the developed world has got up to between 50 and 80 percent of their populations vaccinated, whereas many of the developing nations are only sitting at 4 percent because there's vaccine hoarding going on. So the, the type of international cooperation and collaboration that is required for a climate change effort to, to, to reduce our greenhouse gases and to do something about we don't want to be uh, for where we don't want to be in the next 40 years. Um, it it faces a challenge. If we can't do it with an existential threat like COVID, um, how do we change that so that we can actually do it with climate change? What if globally uh, nations can't agree on greenhouse gas reductions on their national um, their NDCs, their uh, contributions of CO2 for the next 10 years? Do we keep on emitting CO2 and uh, methane at a rate we're doing on at the moment? So what Kelly said is is really right. We need to understand um, what, what backup um, do we have uh, if we can't get it together to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in the next 10 or 15 years? We might not succeed in doing everything we can and therefore not need to look at these things. But that, in fact, we might be succeeding in doing everything we can, but we got a little too close to the edge of the cliff and we might need a little bit of help keeping things stable whilst we do everything we can. I don't know if that's fair to say, but but in silver lining, the thing that we're concerned about is the uncertainty. Historically, how have computational resources limited our understanding and advancement of climate sciences and getting some of those answers that you were just describing we need? Um, and on the flip side, why is cloud-powered research critical to addressing these same issues? The advantage of performing simulations on the cloud is not only there is there is a huge amount of power available um, there to create simulations and to perform the simulations that we need to fully understand the propagation of uncertainty what if we don't understand this process how does that affect the the, the solution um, the um, our understanding of the system 
so there is there is all that but to, to me one of the key aspects to uh, performing the simulations in AWS is the availability then of the model output um, to be looked at by anyone who has access to AWS which is basically anyone and so, so there is a part of, of the, the process that we, we are creating here is to also provide the tools for people to start doing the analysis. And so what we're hoping is really to see a huge increase in the number, but also various de degrees of interest um, of, of people uh, to look at the results. So not, not just our standard group of people uh, doing the analysis, but people looking at things differently, looking at different answers, looking at different angles than what we have done so far. So to me, that's, that's the critical aspect of what AWS and running those simulations on AWS will offer. The programs that that Amazon has to to bring that data, you know, these petabyte data sets out of you know the private environment into the public space is huge. But the models themselves, um, and I learned this from JF and his team, they're massive. They're the CESM model that JF works on is 1.8 million lines of code. These massive climate models, um, I understand from others, the only sort of larger types of simulations in science that get done are on the are astrophysics on the whole universe. These are massive workloads and they've never been run on the cloud before. And partly because they're very, very large and partly because they're not the sort of uh, more, more simple parallel processes that really scale easily on the cloud. So it's only been in recent years that um, you know, the cutting edge of Amazon's cloud technology could support this. Up until now, the only people who could use climate models were people who had access to government supercomputing facilities in developed countries. And, and that's a relatively rare crop of people. So we're really pretty excited about what's possible for the world in terms of Amazon's technology reaching the level that it could support these kinds of workloads, the climate models being there, and then data that's coming from those climate models being there. I run what's called the Codex uh, Africa Initiative. So it's the Coordinated Regional Downscaling Experiment. It's a global program, but I run the African part of it. And what we have to do within our context is I buy 20 external hard disks. I download data from wherever, CMIP or Codex or wherever. And I bring all of these people to Cape Town, the, the Codex Africa folk to Cape Town, and we distribute these um, external hard disks to the different groups. And that's how we get data around <laughs> in Cortex Africa. It's crazy. So if if we have access to a cloud facility like this, where all we need is a desktop and we don't need to, we're not reliant on an external hard drive for data that may or may not work the next time I plug it in. Um, it, it really is a game changer. I, I can't describe how access to data is is massive massive bottleneck for for us in in many developing countries this this does <laughs> this does assume that we don't have rolling blackouts wherever we are and that bandwidth is okay um, but assuming the access to the cloud is is there then it's really going to be 
an excellent tool to develop the capacity for climate research and to develop climate researchers um, in our developing nation countries. And what types and how many simulations are being run for this work? And what exactly are you hoping they'll show us? What are they modeling? Kelly mentioned earlier, uh, the main interest is to look at the next few decades and what actions such as injecting uh, sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere would do to climate both uh, globally and regionally. And, and looking at all aspects of, of, of impacts, so obviously temperature, precipitation, but also crop yield, uh, changes in sea ice, changes in uh, the oceanic circulation. So what we're hoping to, to see is to really understand what are some of the key features um, that are emerging from, from those simulations that we would feel are robust enough, robust in a, in a statistical sense, that we, we feel that there is enough uh, validation and enough understanding of how sensitive those results are to some of our assumptions. So we're going to be running what we would call an ensemble of those simulations, looking at different parameters and changing those parameters and trying to put all that together to get a much more complete picture of what our model uh, would be providing for this type of conditions and simulations. Walk us through solar climate intervention. The basic idea is that we could reflect some of the sun's energy away from Earth, as you were mentioning, Kelly, back into space, and that would then cool the planet. But in simple terms, what does that look like? And why is this the proposed climate intervention that you've decided to study? One of the paths forward is to um, provide, in this case, our model with a representation of emissions of sulfur dioxide into high altitude uh, distributions over the um, what we call the, the stratosphere in several regions, because that's where we know that those gases go through chemical reactions and then become particles. And those particles can then have, because of their properties, can reflect uh, some of the sunlight and the amount of particles that you put is a measure on how much solar radiation you can reduce and how much you would want to to reduce and but of course and there, there will be uh, changes to the overall way the system functions because right now it's not it's not there so then the, the simulations are really intended in in understanding what would be the impact of injecting in this case uh, sulfur dioxide we also have additional approaches to limit the amount of solar radiation that reaches the surface, uh, one of them being what is called marine cloud brightening, which is changing the brightness of the clouds, especially over um, the, uh, the marine uh, regions like the um, off the west coast of, of the United States. And so the amount then is there's more light reflected and therefore less light reaching the surface and therefore less warming. How did the three of your organizations really get connected to work on this 
project together. From Silver Linings' perspective, uh, you know, the National Center for Atmospheric Research and the work they do on uh, global climate models and particularly global climate models in service of the community of researchers around the world, um, you know, they're, they're among the top facilities for that work and John Francois's lab is among the top locations for for that, that type of work in the world and so for us to to help push forward on these kinds of questions then that that was that was kind of a logical connection and Chris is part of a cohort of researchers that were funded by an organization based in the UK that funds global south researchers through a program called decimals the decimals researchers had already been working with NCAR uh, folks at NCAR on these kinds of questions and so what 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 we were interested in is helping the the most uh, high caliber sort of um, successful efforts in the space to move forward. And so I would say that we were connected to them because they were uh, at the top of of their fields in terms of looking at these kinds of questions. When will the simulations begin so that scientists can actually begin to access the data and and analyze it themselves? Uh, we are in, in the process of starting just a few of those 30 um, simulations. We're uh, testing a little more uh, the whole process uh, from running the model to generating the data to putting the data in a location that people can then access it. So right now we're still in a slightly testing phase, but the, the model is, is actually running, I believe, as we speak. How are you hoping democratization of these data sets will accelerate climate research and ultimately action. Being able to analyze these volumes of data is really important and having access to that data, not just from a, a classically small community of northern researchers is, is even more important. So having, as you said earlier, a global access to this data set, running, running analyses on the data set, and then even more importantly, interpreting that analysis and what comes out of that so that we can give information to policymakers who are ultimately going to be making decisions and is is critically important so it's not just the data that's important it's not just the running of the models that's important it's not just the analysis that's important it's the actual interpretation of what the analyses are saying so that it becomes useful um, for decision making what what this democratization of the data does um, is actually allow policymakers in the global north and the global south to have a much better idea much better a picture um, of what the potential effects of solar radiation management being planned for. So it really does make a, a very big difference in the way that the information gets uh, constructed and built so that the policymakers can make decisions. It, it really is uh, a big force multiplier in equity in terms of being able to have, you know, consideration of impacts, better consideration scientifically of impacts in in the parts, in various parts of the world and, and uh, you know, better, more informed experts for the policymakers as, as they are weighing on 
these kinds of issues. The messaging is is homegrown. It's 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 home owned, and that's also a really important thing uh, to understand is that um, the the messages that are that are homegrown that do come from us as southern researchers to our southern policymakers will enjoy a, a lot. They'll be received a lot more welcoming than a message that comes from a, a developed nation who says you need to know this. Here you go, kind of thing. Indeed, there is local and regional knowledge that can then be brought into the analysis that that would not be available uh, from anyone unless the, uh, the people who really live there and know really the structure of the society and how much um, impacts and what will be the impact and how society and, and the whole population will be affected uh, by whatever we find out of those models, really bringing the full understanding of what is going on. Where do you expect this to go in the next next six to 12 months and what's giving you hope? Is really the enabling of new knowledge, of new science. The point that he made about having this as an opportunity to also bring the new generation of um, Earth uh, scientist or system scientist. Um, this to me is, um, is what we need. Um, in three to six months, we will be able to scratch the surface and, and start giving some limited answers uh, to the, the overall problem associated with, with climate change and some of its possible solutions. But it's really um, having a long-term investment that we start with, with this short-term investment. So in the next six to 12 months, these simulations will be done and the data set will be available to the world. This group and Amazon will have experience in how to do this. And they have a forward roadmap of, of similar types of studies that they want to do. And so hopefully these will start springing up over the next year and we'll, we'll be accelerating what we know about near-term climate, what we know about climate interventions and, and exponentially increasing the, the people around the world who can look at that. For me, what's really hopeful, um, in addition to John Francois's comment about the perspectives coming in um, from the local areas about the you know, the localized considerations in different parts of the world is we have not been drawing from the global community of talent. And, you know, just here with Chris, who is down in South Africa, you know, we, the talent pool has been limited by where the supercomputers are. And so we've got a global community of talent. So we would expect in opening that up that things will happen faster. So I think that's very hopeful. The IPCC have just released their working group on report on on the physical basis of climate change, and within that report, we are ve we can very easily see across the globe that there are hot spots of change where things are going to be definitely get hotter and definitely get drier. So there's going to be negative impacts in terms of climate. In February, working group two, which is where I'm working now in the Africa chapter, we're going to release our report, and it, it's going to build on this working group one assessment, and we're going to speak more about the impact. So working group one says, all right, here's what the climate is doing. Working group two is going to say, okay, look what impact it's having. 
And uh, I think the opportunity that we, we have here is to start thinking about what Working Group One has produced, where are the hotspots, and can we design some experiments around these hotspots and involve the communities um, in those hotspots, the scientific communities, hoping it, it is hoping that those communities are there. So getting an inclusive experiment design uh, based on what we've seen coming out of the IPCC assessment report, I think is a really good opportunity that we can have. To learn more about ASDI, visit AmazonSDI.com. To hear more sustainability-focused episodes on Fix This, be sure to check out our archives wherever you get your podcasts. Tune into conversations with Dr. Werner Vogels, CTO of Amazon. In that conversation, he talks about how entrepreneurs today are building with sustainability top of mind. And check out our conversation with Urban Systems Lab at the New School about green infrastructure and so much more. Thank you to our guests, Kelly, Jean-Francois, and Chris, and thank you for tuning in. If you like today's show, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share. We'll be here on the next one.